And please turn to Hebrews 10 and we'll read our sermon text. Our sermon text this morning is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 35. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. So as we go into this, this next section of Hebrews chapter 10, the focus is really on what a great reward it is to have full assurance of salvation, of having the confidence that you've been transformed by Christ that you've been sanctified by the blood of Christ, that this is a great reward. He started back in this theme back on verse 22 when he said, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is what we should desire to have. This is what we should seek to have, a full assurance of faith. As happens so often, that's what we just read about in the Second London Baptist Confession. The blessing of having assurance of our salvation. There's no guarantee that every Christian will have that full assurance of faith. There's no promise that we will all come to that level of maturity in the faith. But that's what we should desire. It's commanded multiple times in Scripture that we're to to seek, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're to make our calling and election sure. We're supposed to approach with a true heart and full assurance of faith. And in this section, he's going to to talk about particular things that cause us to have assurance of salvation, to have confidence in where we stand with God. So I think... Before we go into this passage, it's worth considering the parable of the sower. Because it's directly related to how you make your calling and election sure. It's even why that that in the the confession it talked about there being temporary believers. It's why the writer thinks that they should have confidence in their salvation. So let me read Matthew 13, 18 through 23. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received the seed by the wayside, but he who received the seed in stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who received the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. But he who received the seed on good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Christ said, you can have this faith that appears salvific. That by every outward sign, it looks to be real. It looks the same as everybody else's faith. Those who have true faith. And it's not just outward, inward. Inward, you believe. You're sure you have saving faith. You're sure you know who God is. So it's not like this faith to the outside or inside looks different. It doesn't look different. God knows it's different. But the person who's blind that hasn't had a heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh, they can't tell the difference. They think they're fine with God. But when there's tribulation, when the pressure from the world to turn from their faith comes, 
when persecution arises, when people actually begin to pursue you and to, to push on you and to try to move you from your faith, when they go after you because they're offended by what you believe and practice, it's probably more practice that people are actually offended by. People aren't offended by hypocrites. They're offended when you, when you not only state your beliefs, but you actually live them. When those things happen, they fall away. And notice in this passage, it talks about the same thing, that they suffered reproach and, and persecution, tribulation, and they persevered through it. And so Paul, or the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, you've had this happen to you and your faith has stood. The other reason that Christ stated in this parable why people fall away is because of the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches cause them to stop focusing on God and start to focus on the world and the things in the world. And for the, the people that the book of Hebrews was originally written to, they'd already gone through their goods being plundered. They've already survived this test. They had a choice. Do they renounce Christ or do they have their goods plundered? Do they ignore those who are in chains for the gospel or do they get plundered because of it? And they made the choice. They made the choice to say, we'd rather, we joyfully have our goods plundered for the sake of the confidence of knowing that we're saved. So the writer of Hebrews is not saying something different than what Christ said in the parable. He's saying, you've lived this. You've seen what your faith looks like in practice. You've seen people persecute you. You've seen people abuse you. You've seen people pressure you to try to get you to turn from the faith. You've, you've continued to, to minister to those who are in prison, even though you know it means that all your worldly goods will be plundered. And then he writes and says... And this is a great reward. That plundering, that persecution, it's a great reward because what it produces is a full assurance of salvation. And that confidence is worth everything. It's worth having the world hate you. It's worth having losing all your worldly possessions. When we think of persecution... To them it is sin, but we should recognize if you are faithful and you are persecuted, it is a blessing to you. To them it's sin, but it doesn't mean it's not a blessing to you. Because it's a good thing to have your faith tested. It's a good thing to have it proven. It's a good thing to have it have the dross removed from it. You know, many people worry if they speak of the things of God that they will lose their worldly possessions. But yet if we have the right perspective, that assurance of faith that you speak the words of God and you lose your worldly possessions, that you're gaining something greater because God doesn't have that happen because He hates His children. He has that happen because He's giving them something that's worth far more than their worldly possessions. When you lose those possessions for the sake of having assurance of salvation, losing the possessions is worth it. When you have divisions with your families, but that from that it gives you assurance of your salvation because when you were persecuted, when you were pressured to, to recant and to change, you continued to say, no, I must obey Christ and not, not man. That gives you, that, that division from your family, it gives you the great blessing of assurance of faith. And that's a greater reward than anything that you're losing. And none of this is saying that we should try to antagonize people so that they persecute you. Because then they're not really persecuting you. They're just treating you like the jerk that you are. And that doesn't mean that we go and be poor stewards and that we, we don't deal with our goods and that we don't... We don't use them the way that God would have us to use them so we can say, oh, look, I lost all my worldly possessions for, for Christ. Now, that's, that's the garbage that the Roman Catholics do. It's just blatantly false and blatantly unscriptural. But if God appoints to us to lose our worldly possessions, we should rejoice 
when we do it for the name of Christ, if we do it because we're following the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's important for us to have the right perspective that when they do these things to us, we're receiving something far more valuable from the hand of God. The testing of our faith proves where our faith is. The way you find out if gold is gold is you heat it up and you see what comes out of it. The way you see if your faith is real or not is it gets heated up. And you see if faithfulness, if, if pure obedience comes out of it, or if seeking after the things of this world. This is why James wrote in James 1, verses 2 and 4, My brethren, count all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And when you, when God has sanctified your faith, when he has cleansed it, when he has strengthened it, that's when you have full assurance of salvation. The perfecting of our faith, that gives us knowledge of the reality of our faith. Because it's easy to confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, but you actually believe that he's ruling in the world. So with that context, let's go to verses 32 and 33. But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. So he starts with but. He's drawing a contrast. The writer's last statement was, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And then he goes, but you should remember. You should remember why you don't have to have that great fear that God is going to wreak vengeance on you. Remember that that context of it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God was God talking about what he was going to do to Israel. Because they forgot who God was. They made their profession of faith. They were, or they, they, as a people, they were delivered out of Egypt. They were brought into the promised land. They followed God. They conquered the tribes, not fully. But they obeyed God. And then they grew fat and they grew thick and they are obese. And they forgot the God who saved them. They rejected the rock who saved them. And so God said, I'll scatter you through the world. I'll wet my glittering sword and, and I will slay my enemies. And the Jews were his enemies. Israel was his enemies. And that was the promise. And then he says, remember, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But then he draws a contract and says, but remember who you are. Israel said they were the people of God. They said they were following Jehovah, but they immediately left and went another way. The next generation did not remember who God was or what he had done. And so the writer of Hebrews says, remember, he's not accusing them. He's just reminding them of why we should work to have a full assurance of salvation. Because to be a people under judgment is a horrific thing especially when you consider that most people under that judgment have successfully suppressed the truth to the point that they're sure that they will stand before God. Like in, in Matthew 7, where the people will stand before God and say, did I not prophesy in your name? Did I not cast out demons in your name? Did I not heal in your name? And Christ will say, depart from me, you who never knew me. Most of the people that wander from the faith are, have assurance of salvation. They're, they're confident so much so that they can stand in the presence of Christ and be confident that he's their savior. And yet he goes, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So when you think about it, to be a people under judgment where you don't even have any idea because you've so successfully lied to yourself, that you think you're fine with God when you're really not fine with God at all. Right? So we need to recognize it's like a picture of a blind man who thinks that he knows what color is. He thinks that he, he knows exactly what color is, 
but he's never seen color. He has no idea what color is, but yet he's confident that he knows what color is. That's how a lot of people in the church are. They're confident that they have a heart of flesh, but they have no idea what it means to have a heart of flesh. They're confident that they're a Christian, but they have no idea what it means to be a Christian. And those are the people that should be afraid. Those are the people that should recognize that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Because they don't realize it. They don't realize the wrath of God is still on them because they've lied to themselves and their heart are hardened. And so they think their hard heart is actually soft. They go, but I attend church as they go and lie to their neighbor. So he's going to tell them these are the things that should lead to that confidence. These are the things that are different about the people that the book of Hebrews was written to versus the Jews or Israel that, that Moses was talking to 1,400 years earlier. He starts by saying, recall, remember. You know, one of the reasons that the book was considered to be written to the Hebrews is because of how the Jews were treated when they, how they treated those who professed Christ. They persecuted and plundered them. You know, Paul himself pers- participated in that persecution, that plundering. So when the writer is calling them to recall, he's telling them to remember what it was like when they first decided to follow Jesus. You know, we look at Muslims, right? They profess Christ and they lose everything. They lose their family and there's plenty of cases where, there's, where, where the family itself tries to kill them. They lose all their possession. They lose all their ability to earn money because all their, their connections to businesses around them are now severed because they're, they're not a Muslim. This is what happens when somebody professes Christ when they're a Muslim. Well, that's what happened when somebody professed Christ when they were a Jew. They were put out of it. They probably didn't try to kill them, but mostly because, well, we know that Paul did kill some but mostly because the Romans didn't give them the right to kill them. We shouldn't think that somehow the Jews wouldn't have wanted to kill the Christians then any more than the, any less than the Muslims want to kill the Christians now. So now Muslim parents will attempt to kill their own child, but they will cut them off. All their wealth will be taken from them. And that's exactly what was happening to the Jews when they would profess Christ. It says in Matthew ten seventeen, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. They knew what they were facing when they made a profession of faith. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, remember what it was like. Remember what you had to go through to make a profession of faith. They were to remember what God had done. And so we're supposed to recall that as well. We're supposed to look back to see how through faith, through pursuing holiness in our lives that we've suffered persecution. Because we did things that were not acceptable to the culture that you came from, just like they did things that weren't acceptable to the culture they came from. We should look back and see that this is a manifestation of our faith, not necessarily with the clarity that the Jews could, because we didn't risk death. They risk death. But how many of us can make a profession of faith and risk almost nothing? We need to understand it's a great gift to be persecuted. Because then you can know your faith is real. Then you can know you're not that seed that was planted on shallow soil that had no depth of root, that if persecution never comes, you don't know. Because plants can live for a long time and they can look fruitful for a long time and not withstand the first drought. So we can't collectively look back and see, like they could, how when we chose the road of following Christ, that there was clear persecution, clear plundering, 
But still, God says, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And so if you are desiring to obey God rather than the things of the world, you have had people say mean things about you. You have suffered reproach of men. You have had pressure for you to to do things that are contrary to the word of God. And we're supposed to look back at that. And that's a testimony of our faith. If your faith has never been tested, why do you think you have faith? It's when our faith is tested that we recognize that we have faith. And so everybody who's saved, they should see a separation to God. Because Christ came, as it said earlier in the chapter of Hebrews Christ came to destroy the works of Satan. His blood will take away sin. As we have said repeatedly in this chapter, his blood is not like the blood of bulls and goats. It will take away sin. Christ's blood is effectual. And if it breaks the power of sin in your life, it causes you to walk in a different way and people will be offended. Can you look back and see people being offended? If you can't, why do you think you have faith? You've just joined a a social movement rather than actually having faith. We should be able to recall, not with the clarity that they can, but we should be able to recall the former days, what God has taken us through. For for them, remembering it was like you come to faith and that, that you start to be, you put out of the synagogue, you're shamed before men, you have your goods plundered. But for us to come to faith, we should be able to look and see how when Christ took us through our Christian walk, that relationships were affected. And that should help us to have confidence that we are in Christ Jesus now. Not when you made a profession of faith, but when God perfected your faith. There's so many people in the church, they want to go, oh, remember when you prayed the prayer, remember when you walked the aisle. That's not what God says to look back to, to see if you have faith. It says, do you see me working in you? Do you see when everybody was saying, do this, go out and get drunk with your friends? You went, no. Do you understand that? That's what God is saying. God is saying, did you turn from the world? And when people were pressuring you to walk in the world, did you say, I'm not going to walk in the world? That's how you get assurance of salvation. You have to have your faith tested. So the former days in which, after you were illuminated, so this is talking about when they were taken from darkness to light, a clear and consistent metaphor for salvation. That's why when the same word was used earlier in Hebrews 6.4, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. I think that has to be salvation. And it's saying God won't do this. He won't lose any that are his. Because if he enlightened somebody and then let them go back into darkness, he'd saying Christ needs to be crucified again. So it's saying when you're illuminated, when you have received salvation, how do you know that you're saved? How do you have a full assurance of salvation? Zacharias clearly ties them together in Luke. 1, 77 through 79, to gain knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God, which what, with which the day spring from on high has visited us to give, us to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. That's why the Messiah was going to come. The Messiah came to illuminate people. He came to... He was the light of the world, and he came to to bring people from darkness to light. So after you were saved, they endured. They knew that the Pharisees would persecute them when they made their profession of faith. They knew that the Jewish leaders would, would drag them in front of the synagogue, and they'd slap their face, and they would try to shame them so that they said Christ was not Lord. But they endured that. They knew that the leaders would be opposed to everything they were saying. 
because the Jewish leaders had led the crucifixion of Christ. But they endured anyway. Even though they knew that they would immediately start face persecution, they still, when they were illuminated, when God worked in them, they acted in such a way that it caused them to be persecuted. That word translated means to endure, or translated endure means that they stayed under this situation. It wasn't even that they fled, it's that they stayed in Jerusalem. They stayed where they were, which is probably he's writing to the, to the Christians in Jerusalem. Even in this situation, even when everybody was hating them, even when they were suffering the reproaches of men, even when their worldly goods were taken away, they didn't try to flee the situation. They didn't try to recant or to run. Instead, they stood and they endured. So this isn't this picture of this brief thing that they come and shame you and you have it over with and you move on. That's not what they went through. And so their faith was really tested. Their faith was really proven. They endured a great struggle. This was war. It's, it's easy for us to forget that this is war. You know, the metaphor for a soldier is used frequently. You know, you look at Ephesians 6 with putting on the full armor of God. It's easy to forget we're warriors. We're supposed to be warriors and we should expect that the enemy will fight against us. If nobody ever fights against you, then you're not a very good warrior, are you? You're not a threat. It was a great struggle. When we think of fighting for the gospel, we have to remember that the early church were forced to take these things much more seriously because when they made that profession of faith, they had a bunch of people that were against them. So it was a great struggle, a great war with sufferings, not theoretical sufferings, And a lot of the sufferings were words. A lot of the sufferings were reproaches. A lot of the sufferings was shame. It was was denouncing them before the people. It was pressure to cause them to, to turn and to reject what they knew to be true. But they were also actually scourged. They were actually whipped. They actually had their worldly goods plundered. They had real physical sufferings. They financially were cut off from the people around them. They would have trouble. They, they had a real risk of starvation if they were, were based on the ways of the world. They had real, real sufferings. Things that we don't have. And it's easy to go, oh, isn't it great that we don't have those, but understand. That's not what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's saying... It was a great reward that they received those things. It was a great reward that they had those sufferings. It was a great reward that they had that struggle because they could have confidence in their faith. They could have full assurance. So there were two aspects of it. Partly, the sufferings were that you were made a spectacle. They were set aside by the synagogues. They were set as a gazing stock so that people would look at them. That word translated spectacle is where we get the word theater from. They were the entertainment. They were like the freaks in the circus. That's how they were treated by the Jews in Jerusalem. And so because they were treated that way, they were treated as these outcasts, these these people that were just just strange, they received reproaches. The people literally railed against them. They, they yelled at them. They, they said terrible things about them. They, did, they verbally abused them is really what that means. You know, when they were put out of the synagogues, they were abused, but then as they went down the streets, they would continue to be abused. But yet, in the midst of that, they continued to profess their faith. The, the people could use them as targets for their insults, and everybody thought that was wonderful. And tribulations, the word tribulations mean pressured. In various ways, they were pressured to conform to, to the Jewish traditions. 
They were cut off from society. They were cut off from their ability to provide for themselves. They were, they were cut off from the community that they grew up in. Basically, by testing however they could, by pushing however they could to see if the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches would draw that would be enough to bring them back to mainstream Judaism. But God was kind. Even though the Jews were cruel, God was kind to test their faith. That's the important thing to remember. Yes, when the Jews reproached them, yes, when the Jews put pressure on them that they suffered tribulations, it was not contrary to the kindness of God because God was using it to produce in some, them something that was, that was very valuable, something that we should all seek after, something that we should all desire. So that was one element. And partly there's another element wasn't just how they were treated by other people, but how they treated those who were suffering worse than they were. They became companions. They, they chose not to abandon. They, you know, sympathetic is what the word that's translated companions were. Instead of rejecting people when they threw into, were thrown into prison, they took the risk of going into prison with them. They didn't abandon those who who would stand when Paul's standing in front of all of Jerusalem and they're, they're all wanting to tear him limb from limb and they're, they're gnashing their teeth in rage. They didn't go, well, we're just going to step back. We'll let Paul deal with this. No, they became companions. They joined in that. And that companion doesn't mean that they just encouraged them out of sight. It means that they were partners with them. They... they They joined with them in a visible way so that other people could see them. They did it at the risk of going to prison. They did it at the risk where, where Paul, they were plotting to kill him. They did it at the risk of the, the Pharisees plotting to kill them too. So they became companions of those who were so treated. Instead of seeing other people abused and fleeing from them, which was always part of the reason for the abuse, was to get people to flee from them, to make sure that others would not join with them with the perceived rebellion. What it does instead is it causes the righteous to rise up and support. And that's what they did. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is reminding them. Recall what you did when people were suffering, what you did when people were abused. You didn't run from them. You openly joined with them. Verse 34, for you had compassion on, my, on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. For you had compassion, I said this before, but that word compassion is the one that's sympathetic, is a transliteration of that. So the author is going to give a very specific example. They were sympathetic with him. I think the most likely author of Hebrews was someone who traveled with Paul, who wrote down one of Paul's sermons. So the me could be referring to Paul, because if he wrote down his sermon, it could be Paul. Or in chapter 13, the writer sends greetings from the church in Italy. So it's assumed that this was written in Italy. And so when Paul was arrested and then he made his appeal to Caesar, he was taken to Rome. But he wasn't taken to Rome alone. And so other people would have been sharing in Paul's chain. So even if if it was Silas or somebody else that, that wrote this, he, could, he was suffering with the chains the same as Paul was. But I think that's... It's that those events in the books of Acts, that they were in their chains. And we mostly hear about Paul was in their chains, or in chains, but we shouldn't think that those who were with him didn't suffer the same way. Just because Acts is following what Paul's doing. So the audience of this epistle, they were also companions. I think the most likely explanation and why it's called the book of Hebrews is that it's being written back to Jerusalem 
when Paul's taken to Rome. And so then all, remember that all the nation was against Paul. Everybody was up in arms. They were threatening to rip him limb from limb. The, the Roman soldiers had to march a bunch of soldiers in to break up the riot. And yet still the Christians in Jerusalem were not ashamed of his chains. They were still associated with Paul. Even when the leadership of the Jews were plotting to kill him, they were willing to join him in his sufferings. And not just willing, they did it joyfully. They rejoiced in it. If you have the right understanding of how great a reward it is to have full assurance of salvation, if you rightly understand what a valuable thing that is, then when your faith is tested, then when you go through a tribulation, then when you're persecuted, then when all your goods are plundered, you can actually look at it and deal with it joyfully. Because it's strengthening your faith and it's strengthening your knowledge of your faith. The person who never has to deal with cares of the world, they can never tell. What happens if the deceitfulness of riches and cares of the world come? Would you flee from Christ or would you flee towards Christ? They knew what happened. They knew that when, when this happened and when they joined with Paul, that it would mean that they would lose all their worldly possessions. And they responded with joy because they chose to follow Christ in the midst of a time when it was hard to follow Christ, which meant they had real faith. They were given the option of joining with Paul in his sufferings or separating themselves from God, and they welcomed the opportunity to suffer for the sake of Christ. This was recorded for the apostles as well in Acts 5, 40 and 41. And they agreed with him. This is Gamaliel. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the crowd, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. The apostles could rejoice in persecution. The apostles could rejoice in being beaten. The Hebrews could rejoice in having all their goods plundered. Because they said to know we're Christ, that's worth everything because that's about eternity. Who cares if it takes a while for your wounds to be healed? You know you have assurance of where you'll be for eternity. They rejoiced that they were given the opportunity to represent Christ in the world through their physical suffering. Since they suffered for the same reason that Christ suffered, for righteousness sake. Which means that you can be assured of salvation when you're willing to suffer for righteousness sake. They were given the opportunity to have a physical picture of the gospel and that meant that they would rejoice. In the Hebrews, they also rejoiced that they were given the opportunity to be a picture of Christ. That's what Peter said as well in 1 Peter 2, 19-21. For this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully, for what credit is it when if you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. This is we're called. And this, this testifies to us that we were called. Is when we do this, when we suffer, and so we're to rejoice in it like they did when they were plundered. They accepted, joyfully accepted the plundering. They were willing to lose all their goods and have a real risk of salvation. Then it wasn't like it is now. The widows who were fighting over the distribution of food, it wasn't for the sake of fighting. It's that they went, if we don't get enough food, we may not survive. We're such a rich country, we forget what most of the world is like. You go to Nigeria and they go, you know, if we shut down for three days, some of us will starve to death. In America, we don't think that way. But that's what the Jews had to be thinking. If all our worldly goods are plundered, if we have faith in this world, now you have the promises of God. If you seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, 
All these things will be provided for you. He knows that you need the same thing that the Gentiles need. He knows that you need food. So by faith, you can say, yes, my goods are plundered, but God will provide. But it wasn't like they would go, yeah, I'll just get my welfare check. I'll get my food stamps, and it won't be a problem. They actually had to exercise their faith. They had to say, I have no idea how God will feed me, but I'll joyfully have my goods plundered because I trust that God will feed me. They all became the widow with the two mites. They all had that faith through the work of the Holy Spirit. They could accept, joyfully accept, the plundering of their goods where they would go, I don't know how I'll feed my family now. But they said it's worth it. It's worth it for the reward. It's worth it for the honor of being a picture of Christ and suffering for righteousness' sake. And it's worth it for the reward that God gives of assurance of salvation. So they accepted the plundering of their goods. When their goods were plundered, they were cut off from business. From other businesses, it would be difficult to survive. But they trusted God. And they joyfully submitted. They joyfully submitted. Because they knew that they would receive something more precious. They would know that they had a better, better possessions, more enduring possessions. They were willing to forsake the things of the world. It was a testimony that they understood that there's more important things than the things of this world. There was something better than the comfort in this world. There was something better than peace in this world. There was something more important, which was peace with God and the promise of an enduring possession. They understood the passing nature of this world. Our lives are just a wisp of smoke here today, gone tomorrow. And so they were willing and joyfully submitted to evil men plundering their goods because it testified to them of where their hope really was and allowed them to be a picture of Christ to the people around them. Enduring possession for yourselves. We can see the testimony of others that they trust in God, but truly seeking, they trust in God by truly seeking for eternal life through obedience to God. But we need to make it for ourselves. We need to make our calling and election sure. We need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. What are you willing to sacrifice in this world? Christ was very clear in Matthew 25. If you're not willing to feed the poor, if you're not willing to visit prisoners because their reproach would come upon you, if you're not willing to house strangers, then you're a goat, not a sheep. And you've been appointed for destruction rather than being appointed to be in the presence of God forevermore. We need to make our calling and election sure. As the parable about the pearl of great price says, are you willing to sell all? Are you willing to sell all for the kingdom of God? A man found a pearl out in the field and he did everything that he could to buy that field. This is the picture. They could joyfully accept the plundering because they're going, I'm buying that field. And that field is worth it. What are you willing to sacrifice for the kingdom of God? Are you looking for an enduring possession for yourself in heaven? Those who love the world receive their reward in this world. Those who are seeking eternal life are willing to give up the things of this world. Even for the assurance of eternal life. Verse 35, Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. Therefore, because they can recall these things, because they can recall how they suffered, because they can recall how they were received reproaches, how they were the, the, the laughing stock of Jerusalem, how they were mocked, because they had so much pressure to return and they withstood the pressure to, to not turn back to Judaism, because they joyfully accepted the plunder of their goods, because they had gone through those trials that had proved their faith. 
The writer of Hebrews is saying, don't forget that. Don't cast that away. Remember it. Don't treat that that gift that God gave you through persecution, that gift that that God gave you through your sufferings, don't treat it as a light thing. Do not cast it away. God gives us through trials, through the testing of our faith, God gives us trust that He is our God and that we are His people. We're to look back and to see, look at what God has done in the past. Look at how He has led us to walk in obedience in the midst of suffering. He has led us to not choose the easy way. He has led us to choose the way that means that we'll suffer reproach, that we'll suffer. He's saying, don't cast it away. This is the means to dispel the fear of falling into the hands of the living God. God is not arbitrary, and those that are His, they don't have to fear that total destruction. They don't have to fear the wrath of God coming upon them. We have to fear chastisement, because God chastens those who are His. He scourges every son He receives. But don't cast away the dispelling of the fear of falling into the hands of the living God. Because that's a valuable possession that God gives you through trials and through suffering. Recall the former things. Recall what God has taken you through. Recall when you could have said it would be easier not to follow Christ and instead you followed Christ. That's the means to have assurance of salvation. Do not cast away your confidence. That that word translated confidence, I do think it means confidence, but I think there's also another meaning to it. It comes from two words. It means all spokenness. So this isn't just an inward confidence. He's saying this is where boldness of speech comes from. This is where don't cast away your assurance, having full assurance of faith. But also, if you have full assurance of faith, what that means is that you're bold to speak about it. That you're willing to talk. Don't cast away your willingness to speak any more than you should cast away your assurance of faith. God gives us confidence in our salvation so that we have greater boldness in how we speak to others. To know who you trust and that should produce in you a willingness to speak boldly about the things of God. Which has great reward. To have confidence in your salvation, that's a great reward. That's how you have the peace that surpasses all understanding. That's how you can people come and ask you for the reason that the hope for the hope that is within you when you're in the midst of a trial when you're in the midst of suffering because you have confidence you have full assurance of salvation and then have boldness to speak it's also a great reward that when God has proven your faith when it's been tested and tried when you've when you've seen that it's real and that you've You've walked it out. That's a great reward. And it's a, one of the great rewards is that you then have the boldness to declare God to other people because we're here. So that the knowledge of the glory of God fills the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's what we're here for. And so God gives us that great reward where we have the confidence that, that we'll stand and we'll speak in the midst of places where it will cause persecution, where it will cause people to, to reproach you and to pressure you to change. And that's a great reward that we can preach the gospel, that we can declare the truth of the things of God. God doesn't send persecution because it's bad for us. He sends persecution because it's good for us. It's good for his children. It's a blessing to his children. Because through that persecution, through those trials, through the, through the people pushing you to, to conform to ungodly things, through that God gives a great reward. He gives you internal peace and external confidence. So let me give you a few applications. The first is value what's valuable. Confidence that you will have eternal life. Confidence that you actually have a heart of flesh. Confidence that you're serving God rather than serving the world, the flesh, or the devil. Recognize that's what's really valuable. That's what's truly valuable. 
seeing the perfecting of our faith, because by that faith, that's how we can have that great confidence. When we have trials, you know, when people say that we're in a cult, or people say you're too serious about the Bible, or why are you doing that? That was for, that was for long ago. Why are you being so serious about the things of God? Understand the value of that. doesn't mean that they don't mean it for evil. They do mean it for evil, but God means it for good. He means it to perfect our faith and to ensure our hearts that we truly have faith in God. Rejoice when those things happen to you because they produce great confidence. And that is truly a great reward. Another application, we haven't had a situation like the early church where all the Jews who had saving faith, they were immediately persecuted. They were put out of their synagogues. They were shunned in the business world. So it can be harder if your faith has not been tested to know if it's genuine. But there's a promise related to that as well in 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 12. But if you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, what happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecutions. If you're not suffering any persecution, it means that you're not walking boldly enough in the ways of God. That's what it comes down to. And so you should question your faith. You shouldn't go, I've got full assurance of faith and never receive persecution because that's not what God says faith produces. Real faith produces real separation. Real faith produces people saying things that are reproaches of man. This is what every Christian should expect at some level. This is a promise. All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It doesn't mean you suffer persecution all the time. Even the writer of Hebrews is saying, recall what it used to be like. He's not saying it's like that now. He's saying, recall what it was like. And so, if you never suffer the reproaches of men, then don't have assurance of salvation. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Walk in greater obedience to the commandments of God. There's lots of people who are sure they're saved, and they're not. Lots of people, probably more than there are that actually are saved. I'd be very shocked if it's not considerably more people that are sure they're saved that aren't, that are actually saved. A person with a heart of stone doesn't know what it's like to have a heart of flesh. Desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. And God will cause you to be persecuted. And then you can figure out where you stand before God, which is a really great reward. You don't want to find out. You don't want to be like the, the prophets that stand before Christ and say, I prophesied in your name. I cast out demons in your name. I healed in your name. And God says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Be lawful now. And watch how people respond. And see if you will suffer the persecutions. Or if you're that seed that was thrown on rocky soil that doesn't last when persecutions start. Count those things as a blessing. Because while they mean it for evil, God means it for good. Exercise your faith more. Be bolder in walking in the truth. Be bolder in being godly in how you live. And the persecution will come and your faith will be tested. And either the dross will be removed and your faith will grow. Or you'll be found to just be all dross and no faith. Another application, the opposite is also true. If you avoid conflict over biblical doctrine... If you try to go along, and when you can't, you hide how you are walking or why you're making the choice that you are. You're being busy compromising with the world. If the choices that you make are not based on what God says, if you're walking by sight, not by faith, that should undermine your faith. 
That shouldn't give you that should give you the opposite of confidence in your faith. It should make you question whether your faith is real. Boldly live by faith. If you can't boldly live by faith, do you have faith? Kind of a related thing to that in Muslim countries. I've talked to people who live in Muslim countries and they go, oh yeah, there's all these hidden Christians there. And it's like, that's not biblical. It's not biblical. Christ saves us to declare who he is. They don't have the boldness to say that they believe in Christ. And maybe for a short period there could be some in that situation, but that's not what's implied by this epistle. And nobody should be encouraged to have assurance of faith if they're unwilling to declare Christ before man. Because if you deny Christ before man, he says, I will deny you before the Father. When they know that they'll be persecuted for speaking, or excuse me, the Jews knew they would be persecuted for speaking and they spoke, but now the church goes, oh, there's all these hidden Christians that never say anything. Well, that's not the picture here. The picture here is they knew what the consequence was, so they went and made a profession of faith, and they were put out of the synagogue, and they had their goods plundered, and they were filled with joy because of it. They didn't just hide and say, I'm not going to say anything. It's easy to get false converts. It's really easy to get false converts. And it's really easy to be a false convert when you're not suffering persecution, when you're not losing the things of this world. It's really easy to be a false convert. Confidence in your salvation is a very great reward. Another application, are you willing to take reproach? Are you willing to have people say mean things about you? Are you willing to withstand pressure? That's the most common form of persecution. It's a kind every Christian should see in their life at some level. People say mean things about them. They call them names. They pressure them to turn from walking in in their life as Jesus Christ is their Lord. Withstanding reproach and pressure should be the most basic expectation of a Christian when they encounter the world, is that people will try to get them to turn aside from actually treating Jesus Christ as Lord. When the gospel is preached and doesn't include bearing reproach and suffering with Christ outside the camp, it's a false gospel. Because if you love God and not the world, the world will always hate you. Another application, do you accept suffering as a blessing from God? When you take on the picture of Christ who suffered for our sins and made us his body, we should not flee from taking difficult positions, positions that will cause us to lose real things. Instead, we should respond with joy when this happens. Joy that, we were, that God counted us worthy to take on the picture of Christ. And part of the reason that we should rejoice is that it's a testing of our faith. It's proving to ourselves what we really value. It's making sure that we understand where we really stand in the world. Do we love the things of the world or do we love God? When we accept sufferings properly, when we accept sufferings and say this is appointed to us by the hand of God, when we when we accept the reproaches of men and respond with joy, it says and testifies to us that we actually care for God more than we care for the world. That's a great blessing. Another application, we should not expect sanctification to come without struggle, without suffering. Yes, there is the washing of the water of the word. There is the constant cleansing but most, most significant sanctification comes through struggling and through suffering. God uses suffering to perfect our faith. That's why it says that in James 1. He uses suffering so that in the midst of that suffering, where do you put your trust? In that midst of that trial, where do you put your trust? Do you put it in the things of this world or do you put it in Christ? God uses suffering to perfect our faith, and we should expect that. When we're born again, being born again 
in many cases, I've said this before, I know of people that were hospitalized when they were working to to be saved because they were so sure they were having a heart attack because it was such a struggle and their suffering, their physical suffering was so great. But it doesn't stop there. Sanctification is a great struggle too. Walking in holiness is a great struggle that produces suffering, but it produces blessings. It's still that you get beat like the apostles. It's that you rejoice though that you were able to bear the reproach of Christ. You rejoice that... God blessed you even though they meant it for evil. God doesn't save us to take away struggles. He doesn't save us to take away sufferings. He saves us so that those sufferings and those struggles become about drawing nearer to God, about drawing, removing our, our, our dross that's in our, our faith. God doesn't save us to take away struggle. He saves us so that our struggles become useful and meaningful and to give us a great reward the great reward of peace and joy in the midst of the struggle another application we have a duty to be bold in the world we have a duty to be outspoken about the things of God that is what God matures us to just as he matures us to full assurance of salvation For many, God also matures us to have a greater and greater boldness in the world about the things of Christ. When you're immature, it's in Christ, it's easy that you don't go along, but you don't push back. You're not that bold about what you say, but as you mature, you're supposed to become more bold about what you say. As our faith is tested, that should produce boldness in our speech. Pareo that I addition with all boldness, with all openness, a willingness to deal with sin. Remember in the same chapter it said that we're supposed to be exhorting that the purpose of the gathering, do not forsake the assembling of the saints together because the purpose of the gathering is to exhort one another to love and good works. That's where we should have one of the places that we should have great boldness of speech is a willingness to to risk our earthly possessions, a willingness to risk our our relationships to deal with sin, a willingness to to look at that person in the congregation who you saying he should be doing this or he shouldn't be doing this, and to actually go over and talk to him. That's what the testing of our faith should produce. It should produce that confidence to have that boldness to speak the way we should speak to our brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a duty to be bold in the world, and posting comments on Facebook is not being bold in the world. It's actually speaking to others. It's actually, it's actually talking to things about things of God as you go through the world. And not just to strangers easy either, because it's easy to talk to, to strangers about things. That's why people feel so good about going on mission trips. They go to another place and they speak ten times more boldly about the things of God when they're in a foreign country than they do in their neighborhood. No, what gives us confidence is that we'll speak about it in our neighborhood. We'll express our faith where we are. We have a duty to be bold in this world, and especially where we're putting relationships that are in this world at risk. That's what Christ came to do, and that's what he calls us to do. It's to be outspoken, not just with strangers, but with your relatives, with your co-workers, with, with the people that are around you. That's what maturity should bring, is that outspokenness. That's what full assurance of faith brings, is that outspokenness. And the last application, how much do you love the world? Are you willing to give up worldly comforts? We have more worldly comforts than any people in the history of the world. When we suffered deprivation, it would have been considered having great wealth through most of the history of the world. When we go, oh, that person's poor, it's on a totally different scale than it has been for the vast majority of humanity. So that makes it harder because we're so wealthy, because we have such a fullness of food, because we have such an abundance of idleness, that it can be harder to sacrifice because we have such high expectations of what we need. When they gave up worldly comfort, 
it was the comfort of, will I have food tomorrow? The Hebrews were willing to give up their potential survival to understand that they had faith. They could do it rejoicing, trusting that God had promised that he would give them the things that they need. But they were willing to give it up because they saw faith as that precious. And God gave them the the great reward of having confidence in their salvation. There are many people who go to church who have never suffered for Christ. They may be saved, but they themselves will never know it. Having to make sacrifices in this world helps us to know where we stand before God, where our hearts truly are. Do you know if you love the world or not? Without reproaches and tribulations, without plundering, it's really hard to know. May God grant us suffering so that we can understand where we are in our faith. Because it is a great reward to have confidence in your salvation and have the boldness to speak of things of God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we do thank you for your word. We pray that we learn the things that we should learn from this, that you convict us where we're falling short, that you open us up to understand that it is easy for us to to avoid things that are for our good. and Instead, we should joyfully accept them from your hand. Lord, we thank you for your many mercies. We thank you for what you have delivered us and what you have taught us and shown us. We pray that you give us greater boldness to speak of you, to speak of the, the things of you to the world around us. We live in a dead and dying country. We live in a country that has rejected you and hates to retain knowledge of you. Lord, give us the boldness to speak, even if it means persecution, even if it means reproach, even if it means these things, because you promise that you will carry your people through it for your glory and for your namesake. May we truly be the body of Christ and bear sufferings and reproaches the way that you did. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.